I'm Jeff Cohen. You're about to hear from Cyrus Abbey. His journey to Jewish observance includes fascinating stories about the KGB, testifying before Congress, and personal relationships with both Rabbi Pesach Krohn and comedian Jackie Mason. He even had a day named after him in New York City. Now, how do all these pieces fit together? Let's find out now. Cyrus, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. And I I brought up a lot of unique and interesting things about you in the introduction, which we will, of course, get to over the course of the interview. But let's get to know you a little bit first. Give me a sense of, of your background. Like, where are your parents from? My parents, my father was born in America. My mother came over as a baby from Russia. We lived in Mount Vernon. My father was a very successful accountant. He had come from a family that was orthodox, but I was brought up in a conservative home. We were living in a suburb, and we were members of a conservative congregation, um, which meant basically my father would go to synagogue on Saturday morning, but he would drive, and we were not Shomer Shabbat. My mother kept a strictly kosher, very strictly kosher home, but we ate out. We had Passover seders and things like that, but I never heard the word benching or Birchad Amazon or anything like that while I grew up, and I never heard the name Rashi or Rambam or anything like that either. So your father was raised Orthodox, but your mother was raised conservative? My mother was probably also from an Orthodox, so my father's father was a Malamed on the Lower East Side, and from what I've been told, he was the bad one of five sons from Kovna, all of whom were rabbis, and whose father was a cousin of Rab Yitzchak Elkan Inspector. This is what I've been told. The other four dutifully stayed in Kovna, and he went to America. And he kept religious, as a Malamed on the Lower East Side, struggled. They had 12 children. My father was one of 12. Supporting the family was very difficult. My father moved up to Mount Vernon, and I don't know too much about why he decided to be conservative and what was the reasons for this, but at that era, there was a large drift of people who were drifting away from strict orthodoxy, unfortunately. So there weren't any conversations while you were growing up about, well, there's Orthodox Judaism, there's conservative, and here's why we're choosing to raise you this way versus that? Not at all. Nothing like that. I just accepted things. There was very little. We didn't discussion roots and backgrounds of family. It was just, um, this is how we did things. I had a bar mitzvah. Uh, I had a rabbi who came for a few years before my bar mitzvah once a week to teach me. I did not enjoy the sessions, but I was bar mitzvah, um, and after that the lesson stopped. I continued to put on tefillin, and I observed about like what my parents did until I went away to college, etc. That was how I was brought up. Okay, but you went to public school or you had any kind of yeshiva education? I went to public school, and um, I would stay home on the holidays. But um, it wasn't with any terrific religious knowledge. We, I knew why we had Passover and Hanukkah and things like that, but I didn't really study or learn or do anything like that. But you were rapping to film, which is, is a little bit unusual for someone who's conservative to have that piece of it, but that was just part of, I guess, what was going on in your family. That was something that meant something to me. My father put on tefillin every morning. We didn't spend 45 minutes to an hour davening. We didn't go to the synagogue to do it. 
We put it on, we said the Shema, and we took it off. Got it. So then after your Bar Mitzvah, you're heading into the high school years. So you're, you're wrapping to fill, and you said, is there anything else you're keeping personally that you would call somewhat observant? Nothing different than what my parents had. We were very, very close. My father, when I was about five, six years of age, had the first of seven heart attacks. Whoa. And my parents may not have been that much into the ritual, but they were really very, very strong on consideration for others and kind deeds. Once my father had the heart attack and survived, in addition to being an accountant, he was an after-dinner speaker and a terrific humorist. And he was called by major cardiologists all in Westchester County all the time, and he would go out to visit heart patients in hospitals and in their homes to tell them, look, I've survived and I've been able to go back to work. And in those days, they couldn't do very much for you when you had a heart attack. And he would lift their spirits and cheer them up and give them hope that they could do things. And it was a regular thing that he did. This was one of the things he did, and he was on call for it. Always went to do with those things. That was one example of things he did. He helped to bury people who had nobody to support them to do them. I never heard my mother say a bad word about anybody. So many of the what we would call chesed and concern for people things, very, very strong in the family, but learning and the ritual was not what an Orthodox Jew now observes. Okay, so post-bar mitzvah, you, you went to public school, so are you starting to think about what kind of career you want to have and where you want to go to college? I thought I might want, I want to be a lawyer. I figured I wanted to go to college, and I wanted to be in some sort of where there was some sort of a Jewish atmosphere where I went to college. Um, I didn't want to be too close to home, like children want to get away a bit. And um, I was accepted at Cornell, and I went up to Cornell, um, not really knowing anybody there. But uh, at that time, they had what was called the Young Israel of Cornell, which was a living unit in kosher food place. I had just been started the year before I got there, I think, or two years before I got there. And so on Friday nights, I started to go over there just so I'd have the atmosphere and have a kosher meal and a little bit of Shabbat. And of course, it was eye-opening to me because I never knew anything about benching and I didn't know anything about singing Zmirot. These things were all new to me. And it was a nice atmosphere there. And I made some friends there. And finally, in my junior year, I decided to move in there. And I lived there my junior year. And the orthodox rule there was anything that's in public, you have to be fully observant. So you, you couldn't, I couldn't pull my car in and out of the driving lot on Shabbat. I couldn't turn on the radio so anyone else would hear it. What I did in my own room was up to me. If I wanted to write my essay in my own room, that was up to me. Just before my senior year began, one week before time, my father finally passed away. And um, I was very, very close to my parents, and I wanted to say cottage three times a day for my father. So I called the boys, and I asked if I would be able to go back for my senior year or if I had to stay in New York and take a year off from college in order to be able to say cottage. And they assured me I'd be able to do it. And they kept to their word which was extraordinary because there were only about 20 boys living in the unit. And this meant that in order to make shachrit, those boys who had 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning classes would have to get up very early in order to make sure there was a minion at 7 o'clock because if we made it later, all of those who had left for the 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock classes wouldn't be there. 
And so I was able to keep it three times a day for the entire thing. And I thought it was extraordinary. And it was a lesson to me of the consideration that people could, and of the dedication that Orthodox people would have. It made a very, very strong impression on me that no matter how hard it was for them, they kept their word and they did this. So beyond what you were seeing, though, from your friends who were doing this like super nice gesture of helping you say Kaddish, and you're also living with them, are you thinking of becoming observant? Because you're, you're taking on these different things, but I haven't heard you yet say, I'm gonna, I, I think I actually want to live this way once my life goes on. I hadn't decided to become Orthodox. I wanted to sort of keeping some things, not others, be part of the Jewish community. I wanted to marry a Jewish girl. Um, I wanted that to be part of my lifestyle, but I wasn't um, ready at all to be um, Orthodox and observant like they were. That was not where I was. Okay, so what happens then after graduation? Like, what's the first job? I was very fortunate. I got fellowships to go on to study at at Harvard Law School, and then at Cambridge in England, and then at the University in Paris, studying for all different advanced things uh, in law. And at all of these places that I went to, there was a kosher place to eat. You know, there was the Hillel Society in, in, uh, at, at Harvard, and, and at Cambridge there was this Jewish synagogue type of thing, and then in Paris there was probably the worst French restaurant in Paris, <laughs> etc., which was the student French restaurant, but that's where I could eat food and eat kosher food. So I did that, and I kept mostly with a mostly Jewish community wherever I went. And I was learning a little bit more During my year in Cambridge, England, I took off for my first trip to Israel. And when I was in Israel, I was still observing a couple of things. And I remember people who were not observant turning to me and saying, um, you know, the prayer Ashrei. And I would say, yes. They'd say, okay. So what does Ashrei Oshei Vetecha mean? And I'd say, well, I don't really know what each of the words mean, but I know it's in praise of Hashem. And they'd say, what are you keeping these things for? You really don't know anything about the religion. And that made an impression on me because it made me think to myself, you know, I've gotten about the best secular education you could possibly dream of getting, but I really don't know very much about my religion. I'm keeping it, but I know so little about it. Then when I came back after that and started practicing law, I had a number of Jewish friends, and some of them were religious. When we'd get together, they would tell me, oh, why don't we go to you know this Jewish lecture or that? We went to a number of Rabbi Riskin's lectures at Lincoln Square Synagogue. And I was hearing na- words I never heard before, Vilna gone, and you know, why you know you how careful you have to be about separating on Shabbos, and none of these things had never meant to me. I didn't know anything about this type of thing, and I remember Rabbi Riskin saying something that I've heard many rabbinim say, but it was the first time I heard it. Was basically you're on a ladder, and the most important thing is if you're going up or you're going down on the spiritual ladder that you're on. And I felt to myself, you know, I should be going up, (laughs) and I should figure out what to do. And I really didn't know about these things, and it was bothering me. And I finally said to myself, you know, I really should take a pause in my career, and I should go off to Israel and spend a year or so there. And, you know, first I'll learn in an old pond, and then maybe I'll find some sort of yeshiva or some academy or something like that, 
where I can learn about the religion and that way I'll learn some Hebrew and I'll also learn about the religion and then I'll see what I want to do after that. I don't know if I want to become observant or orthodox or not, but I'll see what I want to do and that will help me to make a decision. Where were you living at the time and how did you swing it to get this time off to go to Israel? I was living at the time on 90th Street on the west side in Manhattan. Um, I sublet my apartment and I went off to Ulpan Etzion in Jerusalem, which was a famous Ulpan there. I spent five months in the Ulpan learning some Hebrew and at that time there were some people who invited students there to come for Shabbat meals. And I remember there was a, a, a Mr. and Mrs. Cohen. He wrote for the Jerusalem Post, and they had me a number of times. And all these times I was getting more and more interested in becoming observant and orthodox, and the welcome I was getting was very, very good also. Um, so I figured at the end of the old pond, I wanted to divide my time. I figured I'd spend some time doing chesed activity, some time improving my Hebrew a little bit, and I'd also go into some yeshiva. But I didn't know where to go. I had a friend here in New York. Her name was Ilana Unterman. Her grandfather was chief rabbi of Israel. That's a good connection. So she, so she said to me, go see my grandfather, <laughs> and he'll help you. So I went to see the grandfather, who was extremely nice, and he suggested to me that the right yeshiva for me to go to was Yeshivat Devar Yerushalayim, which was started by Rabbi Baruch Haravitz. And I went there, and I mentioned to the rabbi what I wanted to do. Other yeshivas had said, you know, you can't come part-time, you can't do this. He said, we'll do whatever you want. How much time do you want to spend? What do you want to study? And everything else like that. And so I spent about six, seven months studying there. As I was going on, I was learning more and more about becoming religious, and it was appealing more and more to me. At one point, while I was learning Gemara, with a Rav Potesh that Rav Horowitz had given me to learn with privately. Rav Potesh would use the Gemara study as an excuse to go into why we keep Shabbat and what it means, why we keep kosher and everything. But at one point he told me something that one of the commentators had said, and that made no sense to me right at all. And I said, you can't believe that. That's all wrong. That's not possible, etc. And the law is different than that in every jurisdiction in America, and you just can't do that. And he said, We'll talk about it more tomorrow. He came in the next day and for an hour gave me about 15 other interpretations of the phrase that had bothered me with all the pros and cons and the arguments dealing with this. And when he got through, I turned to him and I said to him, you must have spent the whole night working on this. And he said, actually it was four hours, but if something troubles my student, it's my job to have it so that he'll understand what it is and he'll accept and he'll appreciate the tradition. And it blew me away. It just blew my mind. I had had all these phenomenal professors throughout all my college and graduate work. Nobody would spend time like that. And I said to myself, I've got to try this thing, orthodoxy, because this is just too good. And it's a wonderful way to lead a life. And that's when I decided to start becoming more and more observant. That was like the tipping point. You come back from Israel and you've made the decision, I want to really go all in on trying to live an observant life. So you're back in New York City. And are you, do you go back to the law firm where you were before? Or what happens No, I, I, got an, I got another job. And I continued practicing law for a number of years after that. 
And as time went on, I was becoming more and more observant. I should say that before I returned immediately, since I had no obligations when I left Israel, I took the next five months to travel eastward. So I went into Iran and India and Nepal and Japan and Hong Kong and places like that. I figured I'd never have another chance like this. And wherever I went, I looked for Jewish people and got invited to people's homes for Shabbat and got hospitality. And some of the stories are extraordinary, but you don't have 10 hours. And um, people were extremely, extremely nice to me. And you took this trip by yourself? Uh, yes, I took this trip by myself. And it also sort of gave me strength that people all over the world were so happy to meet me and make me feel comfortable in their home and you know, talk with me about orthodoxy in America and in Israel, and I'll talk with you about orthodoxy in India or Iran or wherever it is, and it was extremely nice. So you're right, we probably don't have time to go through every place that you visited, but if you want to tell one story of a, a country you went to and what that Shabbos experience was or meeting Jewish people, what that was like, go for it. Okay, so I, when I when I first got on the first trip to go to Iran, I, on the El Al plane to Tehran, this is when the Shah was there, I met a man and I said to him, you know, uh, in Tehran I know there were kosher restaurants, but I'm going to be in Shabbat in Isfahan. Do you know if there are any restaurants in Isfahan where I can eat? And he said, you're going to be in Isfahan over Shabbat. I don't know the restaurants, but let me tell you something. Go and see my cousin there. Wait a second. I'll give you a note. When you get out of the airport, just go straight to see him, and he'll arrange where you can stay and what you can do and things like that. So he writes something for me in Farsi, which, of course, I can't read. And he hands it to me, and he says, just go. So when, I, when the plane lands on Friday morning in Isfahan, so I go to this person's home. I remember I ring the bell, and his little children answer, and they don't know what it is. And finally, father comes, and between his French and my French and his Hebrew and my Hebrew, we could speak enough. And he, I, and he says, you met my cousin, and you're an American, and you were in Israel. Come into the home, please. And he brings me into his home, and I spent the week in Isfahan with this man as a guest in his home eating the best meals you could possibly imagine. He took me everywhere, did everything for me, showed me what it was like, and he had one request for me. When you get up in the morning and you put on that tefillin, make sure all my children see it. I want them to know that in America, children put on tefillin and people put on tefillin, and in Israel they do things. When the week was coming to an end, he said to me, you know, um, he was like the leader of the community in Isfahan. He said, you know, I know all the, all the important Jewish people in Iran. I can find you a great shidduch <laughs> if you want to stay here, okay? Stay, teach my children. I'll find you a great shidduch. You'll have a wonderful life here where you all live very well. I said, no, I have to go home. i got to get back. My mother's waiting for me. You know, I can't stay. Then I said to him, you know, I want to bring a present back for my mother. One of these little miniatures in Iran that people, people know about. And I said, um, but I can hardly talk. And, of course, they'll charge me 10 times as much. So maybe where can I go to shop? So he takes me to the store in Isfahan. And I walk around. And I see something that I really like. And I asked the man, the, the shopkeeper, how much it costs, and he gives me a price, and it was way beyond what I could possibly pay. And I said, I'm sorry. And then I found something little which I could pay for to buy. And then the man, um, when he's packing it, he's giving me both the little one I bought and the other one. 
And I said, no, I can't afford that one. And he said, that's a gift from your friend. So instead of me giving him a gift for putting me up for a week and making it so beautiful for me, he gave me a gift. That's the kind of hospitality you can't dream of having. And it, it was also another example. Look how wonderful the lifestyle is that Orthodox Jewish people have. So he offered to help you find a wife, but you turned down that offer, so you come back to New York. So does your future wife come into the picture at that point once you're no, back? No, no. I, I was a, this single bachelor for many, many years, going to lots of single events, dating a lot, going to every Broadway show in concerts and museums, and living a very good life. I was traveling back to see friends in Paris and to Israel on trips. I led a very happy single life, but it wasn't fulfilling with a wife and family. I also was fortunate to meet and mix with a lot of people, and I had reached the stage where most of the things that people dream of doing in their life I had had, except for the wife and children, which I really, really wanted. And then the fateful day when I went to a UJA singles event. And at that point, I had already been involved in Jewish rescue, which I'll tell you about a little later. And I was interested at that time in the Jews in Ethiopia. Most people did not know much about the Jews in Ethiopia at that time, trying to plan a trip there and to get individuals interested. And there was a young lady and I met, and we were talking. And um, when I mentioned that to her and I asked if she'd like to help, she said yes. So I said, well, if you're really serious, then give me a call. And we talked for a while and I figured she was very sweet and very cute but not for me because she seemed very shy. And she said she hated to travel, and I loved to travel. So I figured this wasn't a match. About three weeks later, I got a phone call from Judy, and we're talking for a while, and I'm waiting for her to come to the point. Is she volunteering or what? Finally, it dawns on me. She's not volunteering. She's calling because she wants to go out with me. Now, I didn't have any interest in going out with her because I figured it wasn't really who I was interested in going out with. But when I had been a boy in high school, and when girls who I had no interest in going out with would call me up because they wanted a, someone for the sorority party or the junior hop, my father had told me, you can't say no if a girl calls you. It's very hard for a girl to call a boy. You have to go out with the girl if she calls you. The worst that'll happen is you'll spend an, an interesting evening. That's the worst that'll happen to you. So I figured, okay. So I turned to her and I said, to her, you know, Judy, it's very nice what we're talking about. Maybe we can get together on Tuesday evening for some coffee and cake. And she said to me, Tuesday evening is fine, but instead of coffee and cake, why don't you come to my home for dinner? And I thought to myself, this shy girl has called me up for a date and invited me on my first, her first date with me <laughs> to her home for dinner. Maybe I misjudged. <laughs> Maybe I made a mistake. So I went. My wife's a good cook. Dinner was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And after that, we started going out. We went out for about a year and got married. And now we're almost at our 40th wedding anniversary in June. Very nice. So tell me a little about your wife and her background. Like, was she raised Orthodox or, when did, or did she come to that later she, like you did? She was raised conservative, but her father left Germany like the last chance in 39, just before time. And they were much more traditional. And she knew a lot more than I did. And while a student at Barnard, she was um, taking courses at JTS and Jewish Theological Seminary. And so she knew a lot more than I knew, but she wasn't all things. But she and her 
parents at that time were tending towards the orthodox scene. And her father then became fully orthodox and um, recently completed 25 years as the president of an orthodox synagogue. Oh, very nice. um, and he's still going strong at 97. Mm -hmm. So together we could grow and we could raise a family um, in an orthodox son. That's what we wanted to do. And over the years we've become more and more observant. Okay, so you actually had that conversation as, as you were proposing and you were, and you were planning to get married. You said, if we're going to have a family someday, the plan is that we're going to raise them Orthodox and we're going to continue to grow together. Oh, that was understood. Both of us wanted that. Both of us wanted that. We knew that. Got it. We knew that. So where did you settle? But as time settle? goes on, we became more and more observant. Mm -hmm. um, we went on our honeymoon to Switzerland. We were in a hotel eating there um, with, with a completely Orthodox crowd. My wife looked around and she said, I'm the only one here whose hair is not covered. Maybe I should cover my hair. So she asked me, would you like me to cover my hair? Cover my hair? And I said, Judy, I'd love it if you covered your hair. Are you prepared to do it? And she says, I think that would be what I should do. So I said, that's wonderful. And so after three weeks since then, she's been covering her hair. So it's, we've been growing as time goes on. Got it. So let's now turn our attention to some of these unique stories that I mentioned in the introduction, which I, I think our listeners are thinking, I got to hear a couple of these crazy stories about this guy that, that Jeff mentioned at the beginning. So one of them was about uh, Jewish rescue missions. So you went to some interesting places and had a little something that happened with the KGB also as part of that? Okay, okay so I think the best story probably, the best thing is um, while I was still single, a few years before meeting Judy, I went on a trip to Romania. Romania was then headed by a dictator named Ceausescu, who was a communist. He, had, he allowed the Jewish society to have things there, but he wasn't allowing Jews to leave. Before I left, I spoke to Yaakov Birnbaum, Glenn Richter, the student struggle. I said, is there anything we can do? And they said, if you meet people who want to leave and can't leave, we could bring pressure because there's a billion dollars in trade between America and Israel that Congress has to renew each year. A billion is nothing to us, but to Romania, it's very big. So if you meet anybody. So when I was in Romania, I met Rodika Lackner um, in Bucharest, and I said to her, you know, and she said to me basically when I asked questions, said, yes, I've been trying to leave about three and a half years ago, et cetera, I applied to leave. I was an English teacher here. I was fired. My husband applied to leave. He was fired from his job, et cetera. We've got children. We've been stuck for three, four years now, and we can't leave. If you can be of any help, great. So I said, well, give me a letter spelling out everything that's happened with you, and do you know any other people like this? So she said, yes. I said, okay, well, I'm going to be back in Bucharest in a couple of days. Give me the letters. When I come back, I'll try. I'm not sure I can do anything, but I'll try. So she gave me the letters. When I came back, to 12 people who had spent about three to four years waiting now for permission. And when I got back to the United States and I saw Yaakov Birnbaum immediately on my arrival, he said, we're flying down to Washington tomorrow. We flew down to Washington, went to congressmen and senators, and they said, that's great, and we'll try to help you by contacting the Romanian ambassador. But you really need a lot of congressmen to do that and make it important. So contact as many people as you can. And when we came back, I said, where am I going to contact congressmen all over the country? And then I said to myself, you know, I was about 40 years old at the time. I said, you know, let me look at my Harvard alumni list. And maybe the best thing that ever happened to me going to Harvard. And I started calling everybody I knew in Harvard who had gone to school with me all across the country. And at 40 years of age, a lot of these people were influential in their communities. 
And I asked them to help. I said, this is not political. The guy wants to join his fiance, wants to join his brother in Tel Aviv, whatever it is. Within three months, all 12 people were out of Romania after waiting four years for permission. And then I was inundated with requests. Two years later, um, it was necessary for me to go back. But this time, I timed my trip for when Ceausescu would be in America making his pitch about how wonderful things were in Romania. There was freedom, people could leave, no problems, etc. And I went to Congressman Rangel, who was my congressman at the time, and he let me dictate a letter saying, I'm glad that you're going there. I want to know how the human rights is, how freedom of emigration is, or something like that. Please report back to me when you come back, etc. This will be very helpful to me on his letterhead. And when I went to Romania using that, I went around speaking to people and asking if they needed help, and they would give me information. I was followed all the time. In the middle of one time leaving one Romanian home where the person had said, my apartment is wired, I can't talk to you here, come out on the porch. He then turned on the radio full blast in his room so no microphones in the room could pick it up. And then we went on the porch and he told me his story. As I left that room place about midnight that night with another woman who also hadn't been allowed to leave but fortunately was an interpreter, so she was able to help me, as we were leaving, it was absolutely desolate on the street. It was as dark as could be. And um, we're walking back from this person's home. A car pulls along the side of the street. Person gets out of the car, runs, swings at me, stops an inch away from my face, pulls back, runs back into the car and drives away. Whoa. Scary as could be, I was scared out of my life, so was the girl. And then I turned to my interpreter and I said to her, that's probably the best news we could get. And she said, why? I said, because if they wanted to get rid of me, there's nobody else here. Nobody would have seen anything. They could have easily shot me, killed me, done whatever they wanted with me here. But all they really wanted to do was scare me. They're not going to scare me because I'm going to do this. And now that I know that they won't touch me because they know because I had shown the letter from Congressman Rangel to everybody. I was in and out of the American embassy. I had latched up with reporters from Reuters. So they know if they do something to me, etc., they've got a problem. And Ceausescu is in America now. And so they didn't do that. When I got to the airport, they grabbed me. They tried to take everything away from me, but I had smuggled out other copies of things anyway. And they weren't going to let me leave unless I signed a confession written in Romanian. What did they want us to say? Surrounded soldiers. Well, they told me it was admitting that I had violated all the laws and I was doing all sorts of wrong things and everything else like that, and they wouldn't let me get on the plane. I was brave in those days. I don't know if I would do it now. I wasn't married at that time, no children. And I basically turned to them and I said to them, you know, you can do away with me, and it might stop a few Jews from leaving this country. But it'll be on the front pages of every single newspaper in America if I'm not on that plane tonight, because everybody knows when I'm coming back. And if that happens while Ceausescu is there, what kind of a trip he's going to have with the fact that Romania has just gotten rid of an American on his trip there. So it'll be on every front page. And I doubt that any of you guys here will be alive when he comes back, because he'll kill anybody who ruined his trip to America. Well, you were brave then. And you want me to sign something? I said, I'll sign something. And I took out a piece of paper and I wrote, things were taken from me at the airport. Okay. <laughs> I gave it to them, and just before the plane was to take off, they escorted me, put me on the plane, and they said, don't come back.
And the people, all those people, I got them out very quickly. All the people that I had met there, I got out. We got out hundreds, thousands of people this way. Um, and now, of course, it's not a problem. Ceausescu, there was an uprising in his country. They killed Ceausescu, and now any Jew who wants to can leave from there. That's one of the examples of what happened. I could take you through stories with each, with Syria and Russia, but you'll be on for hours. What can I tell you? <laughs> Fair enough. But you mentioned these congressmen, and I also said in the introduction that at some point you got to testify before Congress. So what was that about? Well, that's the, the subcommittee on trade, both for the Senate and the House, have hearings on whether the trade privileges should be renewed. And I would be invited down each year to go down, and my pitch would be, you know, here's a list of people. Don't renew it unless these people are out. The Romanian ambassador invited me to the Romanian embassy to tell me, see, I got these people out. And I said, I know you got these people out because the congressmen all called you to tell you to get these people out. And his job was to keep peace with America. So he was, but this was what we did. And of course, the congressmen would renew, but they would renew with this pressure. So this was a way of keeping the Jews coming out. And this helped to get them out. Well, so the congressman would literally say, we will renew on the condition that this list of people is allowed to leave, and then... What would happen happen is your typical congressman from wherever he was, Iowa, would call the, the Romanian ambassador and say, you know, I think it's really nice for us to have these trade agreements with Romania, and I'd like to keep them. But my synagogue is telling me that you won't let Joe, Tom, and Tim leave, and I can't vote for renewal of these trade privileges and come back to my constituents if these guys are still there. So you better get them out so that I can do what I think would be best for both of us. And that was basically the message. And it worked. It's impressive. But why were you, why were you so passionate about this topic? What got you interested I, in doing this? I, well, I think I got turned on when I went to Romania by seeing the fear and what was going on and the people were still willing to take the risk of applying and willing to be followed and willing to go through all of the indignities and and some of them had been to prison and things like that. I, I felt this was something that could be done. I also felt that um, maybe this is why I'm here. Maybe the connections I have and the ability people have to trust me and the feeling that I can, maybe this is something I can get done. I even sometimes think to myself, you know, they say Hashem puts everybody on this earth with a mission. I sort of felt to myself, maybe this is why I'm here. In the introduction, I also mentioned two people that you crossed paths with, Jackie Mason and Rabbi Pesach Krohn. So can you share how those two people came into your life? Okay, so Jackie Mason was a phenomenal comedian who was particularly beloved by the Syrian Jewish community. They just loved going to his shows and hearing him. When I was trying to get help for the Syrian Jews to get out, we needed to raise money in order to get this thing going for the Council for the Rescue of Syrian Jewry and things like that. We had to get raised money for it. And it was just starting out that we were going to try and do things. So um, I had a friend who knew him very well. And Jackie had a custom that before he would do a Broadway show, he would try it out for free, um, either in a little clubs or at a, at, a, at a synagogue thing or something like that. So I asked him if he could do a freebie for the Syrian Jewish community because they loved him. 
where it would be a limited number of people. He had rules on it. It can't be more than 80 people. They have to understand, I'm trying out the material. It's not going to be as polished as the, sh the Broadway show will be, and everything else like that. So he came down to help us, and we did a show there and raised a ton of money because the Syrian Jews were willing to pay lots of money for a private time with him, you know, and then he spent time with all the people and everything else like that, and he gave a great show. I jokingly would turn to him afterwards because he did about six programs for me for Syrian Jews and for other charities I was involved in. I sometimes said to him that maybe before he passed away, I said to him, you know, maybe the best thing in your, that you did in your life was you helped 5,000 Jews to get out of Syria. And um, he was a complete professional, and he knows he was helping people, and it was a wonderful mitzvah that he did. Okay, and then Pesach Krohn comes into your life also? Well, Pesach Krohn, I went to hear speak many times, and I really liked him. I think The Glittering World of Chesed is a phenomenal book. I'll plug one of his books. Pesach Krohn wrote in one of his books that apparently on your birthday, Hashem is particularly receptive to brachas that you give to other people, like a chatan at a wedding. It's also individual on your birthday. So I figured that would be a nice thing to do. So when my 80th birthday came up, I asked him, where can I go and give brachas to poor and needy people and also give them presents? So he gave, caught me in touch with Masbia. Masbia is a food pantry located in Brooklyn and Queens. They have three locations where individuals come to eat and they also come to pick up Shabbos food for their family. So on my 80th birthday, and again just recently on my 83rd birthday, I went to Masbia and I gave brachas to 80 people who would come to me, and I gave $80 to each of the persons who would come. And I would ask each individual what bracha they wanted, and whether it was for a shidduch, whether it was health for themselves or someone else, people told me all sorts of personal things they wanted help with. And I gave them a bracha, and I hope Hashem performed them. And I also did it for my 83rd. The people there were very surprised because they didn't <laughs> expect this at all. But there were also, many of them were super nice. And a number of them, after I gave them a bracha, said, let me give you a bracha also, uh -huh. which was extremely nice of them. So I got a lot of brachas from people. I hope their brachas also come true. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. And there's one more thing that I mentioned in the introduction about you eventually having a day name for you in New York City. So what, what's the story behind that? Okay, so... I started many, many years ago an organization basically called Hospital Tours Musical Programs, which I expand and everything else like that. Over the last more than 50 years, we have put on over a thousand free musical programs in hospitals, old age homes, shelters, prisons in the United States, France, and Israel, mostly in New York. In back about 30 years ago, when we had done like five or 600 of them, um, the city council of the city of New York um, issued a proclamation naming a day the Cyrus Abbey Day to thank me for putting all these shows on. The performers who come to it are well, usually Broadway performers, cabaret performers, television performers. Nobody gets paid. It's not an organized charity. They put on a show. They walk in. The patients are depressed. They walk out an hour later. The patients are happy as can be. It's a form of bichu cholim maybe following somewhat the idea that my father had, that he did his bichur by cheering up cardiac patients. So this is another way to cheer people up who are sick. 
You know, it's just so beautiful about your story. I, I've interviewed a lot of people now on this podcast, and, and everyone's always saying you have to give back, do things for the Jewish people, do acts of kindness. But you have some real tangible stories of literally thousands of people that you're helping to give them a better life. It's really impressive. Thank you very much, Jeff. I, when I became religious, I had a feeling that um, you had to grow and go up that ladder that Rabbi Riska mentioned, both in the learning and in observance of the rituals, but you also had to try and find new ways that you could grow in helping other people. And I'm constantly looking for them, and I've got a few more ideas that I'm hoping to still be able to get done um, and get started. And I'd love people to copy the ideas. Tell your audience, please, on their birthday, go out, Give a bracha to people who need it and give a present, whatever the size of the present is, to people who need it. It should be done by everybody on their birthday. You heard it here first from Cyrus. We need to do the <laughs> birthday bracha challenge. I like that. So maybe that will go viral. That would be a wonderful thing. So as someone who went through your own journey to Jewish observance, I have to believe you have some advice for other people or somewhere along the way. So what would you say to someone else who's heading in the direction that you went through in your life? Not only is it important to become more observant in your relationship to Hashem, like keeping Shabbat and kosher, but it's equally important for you to be doing more things for your fellow man, to find ways in which you have special things that you can do to help your friends. And in all of the rules that you'll learn about, Lashon Hara, Chesed that you can do, Tzedakah, Haknasad Arachim, hospitality, all of these things, Try and find how you can do as much as possible also, because that's part of the growth that you should be going through in moving up the ladder of spirituality. That is a beautiful one to end on. I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very, very much also. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I've enjoyed it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.